we need to live as the holy people of God, set apart from the world around us, not in some kind of cliquish way, but in a missional way to show the world around us what the character of God is like, that he is a uh, merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that he is concerned for the oppressed and the poor, the disenfranchised, the widow and the orphan. I mean, that goes all the way through from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Frank Fielman. Frank currently serves as Presbyterian Chair of Divinity and Professor of New Testament at Beeson Divinity School. He's also an ordained minister in the PCA and the author of many books and commentaries, including one on the Book of Galatians in the ESV Expository Commentary series, published by Crossway. Today, Frank and I discuss what the New Testament, and particularly the Apostle Paul, teaches us about how Christians today should think about the Mosaic Law. He reflects on why this seems like such a challenging hermeneutical issue, why the topic of circumcision was so central in Paul's epistles, and how the so-called new perspective on Paul fits into this conversation. Let's get started. Frank, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Well, delighted to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Before jumping into the weeds on understanding, you know, what the New Testament actually teaches about how the Old Testament law applies, uh, one maybe bigger question that maybe some people have wrestled with, I know I have, uh, do you think that Scripture, in particular the New Testament, is crystal clear on this issue uh, on exactly how it applies to believers today? Or or are there some maybe ambiguities or just things that are left a little bit less clear um, that we kind of have to become comfortable with? I, I think there there are hermeneutical ambiguities in exactly which, which laws carry over and which do not. But I think there are some pretty clear principles given um, Especially when you watch Jesus and his handling of the Mosaic Law in his teaching, you watch you watch the way he he deals with the Mosaic Law. So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five through seven, he says, "You have heard that it was said uh, long ago," and then he'll quote a part of the Mosaic Law, and then he'll say, "But I say to you." And at first, it looks like he's contrasting his teaching with the Mosaic Law; that he's setting his teaching over against it. But when you look uh, carefully at what he teaches, it's often bringing a principle that's buried in that Mosaic commandment forward to perfection. Hmm. So, uh, so for example, in his treatment of divorce, um, he, um, you know, he quotes the Mosaic law that uh, Moses did allow divorce. I mean, he, he, he assumes that that is there. But he says that that law was given because of the hardness of your hearts. And um, what he's talking about there is the law needing to be given within a context where not everybody within Israel was a believer. And so this law had to function. This law of divorce had to function in a way to regulate divorce, which was not ideal and was not God's best plan at all. But divorces were going to happen within Israel. Uh, just like they happen within any, within any society or within any nation. 
So Moses gave this law that dealt with the hardness of people's hearts on one hand, but also dealt with it in a way that showed great compassion toward the woman who would be divorced. She was to be given a certificate of divorce, and that would allow her to marry someone else and not starve. But Jesus goes on and he says, but in the beginning it was not so. In other words, this is not God's ideal for his people. We shouldn't just assume that divorce is the norm. Uh, instead, um, God created man and woman uh, to, to be in a monogamous relationship with each other in marriage and uh, for that to last their whole lives. And so that's the way Jesus handles the Mosaic Law. And I think, you know, with a little bit of study of the teachings of Jesus and also Paul's understanding of Jesus and his teachings, um, it, we can come to some real clarity about which parts of the Mosaic Law uh, move over very directly into the New Testament era and which parts uh, are more ambiguous and that we, mm. you know, we can have some friendly debate about. Yeah, that's a, that's a helpful word just of encouragement as I'm sure many people have felt similar to, to I do at times of just you know, wondering, is there clarity on this or is there just, you know, inevitably going to be so many different opinions on on these things and different ways of reading the text? Uh, and, and, you know, one of the most common ways of talking about the Old Testament law and its application to Christians today is to divide the law up into these three categories, the moral component, the ceremonial component and the legal uh, component. I think Calvin is a good example of this. He did that in his institutes. And so some people will say, well, the ceremonial and legal aspects of the law uh, have fallen away. They're not applicable to Christians today, uh, although maybe we can learn from them in some ways that the moral aspects are still applicable. And that's kind of how they a shorthand that they have for trying to explain why some apply and some don't. Uh, but I know others have rejected that. They, they feel like that's a that's imposing kind of an an extra biblical framework on what the text is actually doing. I'm curious, do you have an opinion on that? Do you, do you think that's a helpful way to break things up? I think from a first century Jewish perspective, um, dividing the law in that tripartite way between morals, uh, moral, ceremonial, and legal is not, um, it is not helpful because it's historically um, no Jewish person would have said that you could divide the law. Each part of the law is, is uh, God's word, and the law can't be divided up in that way. From the perspective, though, of systematic theology, I can understand why Calvin and the Reformed uh, Church analyzed the law in that way. I think it's a New Testament way, really, of... Um, analyzing the law, but projecting backward uh, from uh, conclusions that we draw based on the New Testament and the Old Testament, projecting backward. So, uh, for example, if Calvin were to have a discussion with a first century Jewish person, I'm not sure they would quite know what Calvin was talking about. <laughs> but what Calvin said was, was quite helpful for us today. It's a way of showing that given what the gospel says, there are parts of the law that point forward to, uh, to Jesus and his sacrifice, the ceremonial law, 
There are parts of, of the law that were intended for the nation of Israel as a nation. And there are parts of the law that are moral in the sense, uh, in the Ten Commandments mainly fall into this category, um, in the sense that they state enduring moral precepts that often many societies in the world discover humanity best lives by. So no society functions very long for very, very well for very long uh, if people don't observe the commandment, you shall not steal, uh, you shall not murder, uh, you shall not bear false witness. The society best works when those laws are followed and um, those are woven into the fabric of humanity because God created us that way. So um, in other words, I don't think it's inappropriate to analyze uh, the law of God in those three categories, but we have to understand if, when we're doing that, we're doing systematic theology. Hmm. And we're not doing something that any first century Jewish person would have understood very well. Um, and we're, we're really not following categories that Jesus himself talked about or that Paul himself talked about. And, and that's why I think it, it's best to talk about the Mosaic law um, when we're talking about the New Testament and interpreting, say, for example, Galatians, we're talking about Paul's argument that the Mosaic law was valid until Christ came. And so the Mosaic law, it, it, functioning in the way that God gave it to Israel to function, has now been set aside. And, um, and now we have, I think, what Paul would call the law of Christ. I mean, that's why he refers to the law of Christ in Galatians 6, 2, which if you analyze it and look at it, I mean, it's the Mosaic law. It's Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and so it, the law of Christ is built on the Mosaic law and brings the Mosaic law to its intended perfection for the people of God, but in such a way that the people of God now consists of more than just the nation of Israel. We come from all the nations of the earth. And... Um, so I, 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 I know it's sort of a complicated answer, but I think that's the way I would approach the, the tripartite understanding of the law in systematic theology. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. And, and as you mentioned, uh, the book of Galatians is, you know, a pretty crucial New Testament book where Paul says a lot about this issue, how the law functions in the life of the Christian, what its original intended purpose was, and he seems to be doing that in a way that's correcting maybe a misunderstanding of his original readers. And so but maybe before jumping into some key passages in Galatians that, that I'd love to discuss with you, can you just give us a quick sketch of what was going on in Galatia? What's the historical context sure. and the, the impetus for the book that helps that we should know before we try to understand what Paul actually says? Yeah, well, Galatians uh, was written early in Paul's career, I think. Um, I'm beginning to think it was probably written from the city of Corinth. So it, it's a very early letter of Paul. And it was written to, to churches that were in the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia, the churches of Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, uh, and Pisidian Antioch. These were churches Paul had founded on, Paul and Barnabas had both founded on 
their first mi missionary journey, and then Paul had revisited on his second missionary journey. And this was a period of time in which a, uh, there was a great deal of ferment uh, in Judea, especially among people that were um, Jewish Christians, and they were asking questions like the questions we just discussed. Um, what parts of the Mosaic Law are still valid? Which ones are not? They were working through those problems. And some people came to, um, came to the conclusion that it was really important for any Gentiles who were interested in believing in the Messiah to actually become Jewish before they, uh, or, or in order to complete their original faith in Christ, their original faith in the Messiah. Paul saw this very perceptibly as a violation of the principle, two principles. First of all, that salvation cannot come by anything human beings do. Salvation only comes, righteousness with God only comes by trusting in God's ability to save us through Christ and through the gospel. And secondly, Paul saw this as a violation of the promise to Abraham, that Abraham would be the father of many nations, not just of one nation, if all the Gentiles who want to want to believe the gospel have to become Jewish, then Abraham is only the father of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, but uh, that wouldn't fulfill the promise to Abraham. So if the promise to Abraham is to be fulfilled, then uh, all the nations of the earth have to be included, and that means uh, they need to be included by some means other than becoming Jewish. And Paul sees faith as that means. So um, there were some people in Southern Galatia who had come to this conclusion. They were Jewish Christians who had come to the conclusion that Gentiles had to complete their faith by becoming Jewish. And um, Paul writes this letter to set that false teaching straight. And uh, he's very concerned about it. It's a very emotional letter. <laughs> so in Galatians 3.19, uh, Paul seems to kind of uh, ask a question on behalf of his readers. It's, it's probably uh, one of the first questions that, that many of us have when we sort of see him saying, you know, in big picture, the, the law is no longer um, this dominating thing for the life of the Christian uh, he then asks this question, if the righteous live by faith and we don't get justified by the law, why did God give Israel the law? So I wonder, can you summarize kind of what's his answer to that initial question? Sure, I'd be glad to. So he, he asked the question himself. He knows this will be a question. Um, if the law is so often aligned with sin and if our attempts to obey the law can never make us right with God. And if Christ had to be crucified and uh, take the curse that the law pronounced upon us, is the law against the promises of God? And is the law really aligned with God? Or is somehow the law against God? Why then the law, you know, he asks. And that he recognizes that's a very good question. But he's also very clear that the law does come from God. It's God's word. Paul calls it scripture in chapter 3, verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, 
And that's in the process of answering the question, why then the law? He says mm. that the scripture imprisoned everyone, everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ, Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So the, the short answer, and Paul explains this much more fully in Romans, particularly Romans 5 and in Romans 7, but the short answer is that God did not actually give the law so that we might be made right with him by keeping it. Hmm. Uh, he, God is true to his word, he's true to his promises, and if we could succeed in keeping the whole law, he would save us by that means. But God gave us the law to show us that we're sinful. That's what Paul means when he says the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that God knew when he gave the law that we could not keep it. Um, it, the law promises life to those who keep it. So Deuteronomy 30, you know, do these things and you shall live. And it's not as if God gave us a law that was too hard to keep. Deuteronomy is also very clear about that. It, it's, it, it's not an unreasonable law. So on, in any given moment, keeping the commandment, you shall not covet, is not a difficult commandment. But over the course of an entire lifetime, Keeping the commandment, you shall not covet, is very difficult to keep every day over the course of a lifetime. And so it is with the commandments of God. Absolutely none of them are unreasonable. And we recognize that when we realize that, you know, they're just ways of treating others the way we would want to be treated. And ways of acknowledging God for who he is. They're very reasonable. But the thing is, no human being can keep these laws in their entirety. And so the law, when God gave the law, he knew that the law would show us that um, his holiness is far beyond our human, fallen human ability to match and that we cannot keep the law. So its purpose was to show us why faith in Christ is necessary, why it was necessary for Christ to die on the cross as a as an atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, and why righteousness with God can only come by faith in him. It can't come by any human means. And um, so Paul, uh, Paul says that in a nutshell in Galatians 3, uh, 21 to 20, uh, sorry, 19 to 22, why then the law, it was added because of transgressions. What Paul means by that is it was added to show that sin uh, is transgression against God. So sin is kind of a vague concept. Transgression is a more specific concept. It refers to crossing a line. And so when we have a law in place that tells us what to do and what not to do, we know real clearly and very specifically that we've crossed a line when we violated it. So the law was added because of transgressions, to define sin as transgression. And then Paul goes on, it was added until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And that, of course, is Christ. And it was put in place, uh, Paul says, uh, it at that time until Christ should come. So uh, it was temporary, it, it, and um, it, it was not God's ultimate way of addressing 
uh, sin. It didn't say everything that there needed to be said about sin. It defined sin very clearly, but it didn't offer the remedy mm. for the, the problems introduced by sin or who, by people who sin against it. Only Christ could do that. Well, you mentioned that idea of spiritual circumcision, and that kind of ties into the, the broader topic of circumcision that Paul uh, comes to in Galatians 5, and he says that uh, those who would say that circumcision is required, physical circumcision is required for the Christian are actually, actually severed from Christ, and pretty strong language. And in earlier in Galatians 2, we see how he's emphasizing that Titus uh, wasn't allowed to get circumcised um, as a Gentile. But um, probably those who, who might be familiar with that might also recognize, though, we have this story in Acts 16, uh, where Paul actually does have Timothy, another Gentile, circumcised. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, how does circumcision fit into this conversation? And why does it seem like Paul sort of does two different things at different spots? Yeah, like, that's a a very common question and a good one. And um, I think it all, everything has to do with the circumstances. Uh, Paul was not against circumcision per se. Uh, he says in Romans 4 that circumcision served as a sign and seal of the faith of Abraham. And so the problem is not with circumcision per se, the problem is the reasons for which circumcision was undertaken. Uh, and the problem in Galatia is that people are requiring circumcision as a, as a necessity of membership within the people of God. And Paul believes that is to set up a, um, set up a human work as an entry requirement into the people of God. And that entry, Paul insists, is only by God's grace and uh, is a matter of human faith. So why did he have Timothy circumcised? Well, because Timothy was actually Jewish. His mother was Jewish. His father was a Greek. His mother was Jewish. And um, Timothy was actually from Southern Galatia. So he was from these churches that Paul is writing to right here. And um, so uh, it, and there was a great deal of ferment in Southern Galatia among uh, Jewish people who had uh, were quite aware that the Roman Empire in various ways had treated them unfairly and who very much wanted to preserve their distinctives as Jewish people. Paul was not against uh, Jewish Christians preserving their distinctiveness as Jewish people. So he was not against at all Jewish people continuing to circumcise their male young, as long as they didn't believe that was necessary for salvation. What he was against was forcing non-Jewish people to be circumcised as a necessary requirement for entering the people of God. So he, he absolutely insisted that Titus, who was a Greek, not be circumcised. But he encouraged Timothy to be circumcised. In fact, uh, the book of Acts says that Paul did the circumcising. If you read the Greek text carefully, it says Paul circumcised him. It doesn't mm, say wow. Paul had him circumcised. <laughs> so Paul was a learned rabbi. He knew how to do circumcisions. And he circumcised Timothy. And he did that because Timothy was Jewish. 
And Timothy's reputation was undoubtedly widely known as an uncircumcised Jewish person whose mother had not had him circumcised because the father was Greek. And Paul didn't want that to be a stumbling block. And uh, I'm sure Timothy was happy to have it done. Had Timothy resisted, Paul wouldn't have done it. But uh, with, with Timothy's permission and seeing the, the necessity of it for a mission strategy, um, Paul did it. And I, I think this falls right in line with Paul's, uh, the strategy that Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 21, where he says that to the Jews, he is a Jew, and to the Gentile, when among Gentiles, he lives as a Gentile, because the point is not to put any stumbling block in, in, um, in the way of the progress of the gospel. And so he's not going to give unnecessary offense. And you can see the wisdom, actually, in Paul having done that. If you look over in um, Acts uh, chapters 21 and 22, where Paul does finally end up in Jerusalem. And one of the first things that James, who is the leader of the Jerusalem Christian community, says to him when Paul arrives is that, Paul, word has gotten out that you are teaching uh, Jewish people not to circumcise their male young. And that's not what Paul was teaching. So hmm. um, Paul doesn't want that to be a hindrance to the progress of, of the gospel. And I think that's why he had Timothy circumcised. So it was like a cultural thing that was that had a missiological purpose, but it, Paul wasn't changing his theology of what circumcision meant and what it was for. Not at all. No, it was actually perfectly consistent with the theology that's articulated in Paul's letters all the way through. Hmm. So then another uh, kind of broad issue, maybe the elephant in the room a little bit for those who uh, maybe pastors or those who have, who, who have studied some of these things before, uh, is this broad topic of the new perspective on Paul. How, how does that fit into this? Um, how would someone who advocates for that understanding of both the law, but also what justification is and how Christians are justified, what Paul's saying when he says that we're justified by faith and not by works of the law, like circumcision, mm -hmm. how, would, how would that person understand Paul's argument here in Galatians? Well, when I talk about the new perspective, I always like to talk about it um, as a scholarly movement <clears throat> that is quite diverse. And the two representatives of it that I'm most familiar with are uh, James D.G. Dunn and N.T. Wright. And I would just say about their scholarly work that um, I think they've been very helpful in many ways at helping us understand the first mid-first century background uh, within uh, the Judaism of the time that uh, forms the backdrop for Galatians and Romans and Paul's theology. And what they've very helpfully reminded us of is that um, Paul's theology is, um, is, is very much about the church and the nature, the multi-ethnic nature of the church. And that the church does not just consist of one group of um, 
people with one language and one set of customs, but is a multinational, multi-ethnic group. And uh, I think that's a good, it's a wonderful emphasis. Uh, it's there all through the Bible, and you find it in Paul, and the New Perspective has helped us to appreciate that greatly. I think I, I would want to tweak in the positions of and differ from those positions a, a, a little bit. Sometimes when I, when I read New Perspective advocates on justification and uh, the way it works, um, I, I think the reformers got justification exactly right. <laughs> so I, when I read Luther and Calvin on justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, I think they have understood, uh, understood Paul extraordinarily well. And um, so anyone that, you know, it, wants to say they didn't understand Paul, well, uh, of course, you know, I'm going to hear them out and hear what they have to say, but I have not been convinced by any new perspective author that Luther and Calvin didn't get the, the basic principle behind justification uh, correct. Uh, I, I, I think they did. And I do, I do think that sometimes new perspective authors have been misread on this. Um, uh, they have to be read very carefully, and uh, I think sometimes positions have been attributed to them that uh, they don't actually hold. I, I do think occasionally they have also said things, um, you know, in ways that have brought some controversy. But um, basically, I, you know, I think I just read um, the New Perspective stuff uh, very much like I read G.K. Chesterton. Uh, there's a lot of G.K. Chesterton I absolutely love. I, he's so good on so many things. But when Chesterton starts talking about Calvinism and Protestantism, I don't follow him there. <laughs> So, uh, new, so there are some new perspective authors that I kind of view in the same way. I just think, you know, they've done a lot of good work in a lot of areas. I want to benefit from those areas. But uh, there are also other areas where I'm going to go right back to the reformers to get my uh, theology on. Yeah. So that, that's kind of my approach there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe as a final question, um, broadly speaking, among many Protestants, uh, when it comes to understanding the law, there's kind of two camps. There's the Lutheran side of things. There's the Calvin side of things. Um, Calvin uh, famously advocates for three uses of the law uh, among Christians today, and Luther uh, and Lutherans now often say, no, there's only two uses. So I wonder, um, based on all that we've said here today about Galatians and understanding kind of what Paul says with the purpose of the law, was and continues to be where do you fall on the side of that that debate uh and and yeah what would you say to that well my instincts are calvinist i, I was raised in a presbyterian home and i'm an ordained presbyterian minister so it won't surprise <laughs> so anyone there's your answer that <laughs> I, I like calvin um and uh you know i always want to put the bible first i mean the if if uh i discover that uh the Bible corrects Calvin, when well, then I go with the Bible. <laughs> you know, the, 
the Bible is the word of God, and Calvin would want me to do that. Um, I do think uh, the Reformed reading, the classic Reformed understanding of the relationship between the two Testaments is a very valuable and helpful understanding. I think the Lutherans have something to teach us here, too. Uh, we, we need to be careful about overemphasizing our own distinctives, and uh, we need to recognize that there are ambiguities, um, and we probably need to be more unified than we sometimes are when we divide up into our various camps. I think being careful students of the Bible can do that for us. We can see where the ambiguities lie and why Luther articulated certain things some ways and Calvin another, in other ways. Um, but I do think the Bible is a unity. And um, I think that uh, justification by faith alone is taught in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, I do think that there is uh, plenty of law in the New Testament. I believe that it's really important for Christians to keep the law of God. We don't keep the law of God in order to get right with God, but we do need to keep the law of God as a matter of sanctification, and that's taught from the beginning to the end of the Bible, that we need to, um, we need to live as the holy people of God, set apart from the world around us, not in some kind of cliquish way, but in a missional way to show the world around us what the character of God is like, that he's a that he is a uh, merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that he is concerned for the oppressed and the poor, the disenfranchised, the widow and the orphan. I mean, that goes all the way through from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Um, it's what's taught in the law of God. It's what's taught in the teachings of Jesus. Um, you see it there. Um, in Paul's writings as well, and also in the, um, in, in the other writings of the New Testament. So um, it, it, rather than talk about Lutheran, Lutherans and Calvinists, I would just talk about the importance of a biblical theology and seeing the Bible as um, having, a, having unity on these really important topics. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's such a good word. And I uh, just appreciate you taking the time today to uh, help all of us better understand not just a little bit of the book of Galatians, but this broader topic that is often so maybe confusing or overwhelming for us as we try to understand uh, what it is that Paul's saying. So thank you so much for, for talking with me today. Well, Matt, thank you. It's been a delight. That was Frank Thielman on how Christians should understand the Mosaic Law. For more, be sure to check out his commentary on the Book of Galatians in Crossway's expository commentary series, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.